Okay, I think we're going to get started. Thank you. Welcome to the Nutrition Center seminar series. I'm going to introduce myself this time because the other half of our administrative team is at the um, APHA meeting this week. So um, I'm Angela Lisa, and I will be presenting on the topic of measurement error and wanted to share with you um, sort of recent uh, methodological advances and a couple of applications in a project that I've been doing over the last mm, year, year and a half. So um, to start out with, I, I just want to give a little bit of background on what, um, why we care about measurement error and how it applies to nutritional epidemiology. And then um, share with you two examples. Um, the first one is going to be on a cross-sectional study that we did on the association of sugar-sweetened beverage intake and lipid levels. And the second one is um, on a, a validation effort of a food frequency questionnaire that we used. And both of these um, examples are going to be situated in a um, study of children with diabetes mostly, well, for this purpose here, only kids with type 1 diabetes, but it's in a larger project that looks as, at both type 1 and type 2 diabetes in youth. And so from that, there'll be a few conclusions and other resources to share. So um, before I get started, um, there's been sort of a long-standing interest in the relationship of diet to health outcomes. And back to the 1940s and 50s, large cohort studies were initiated that specifically assessed diet with records, with food frequency questionnaires, you name it, to look at how our dietary in, uh, intake actually impacts risk factors for cardiovascular disease, for cancer, et cetera. But out of all of that work came sort of an understanding that the effects that were thought to be really profound and must be there were oftentimes not mirrored in the data. And in fact, the associations were oftentimes very small and um, weak if they were there at all. And that was very frustrating to the investigators. You're all very welcome. Thanks for coming. And there's a whole side here with seats. We reserve them for you. So. <laughs> And so I think it is out of sort of uh, um, this sense of really unhappiness with the results for so many decades of nutritional epidemiology that specialists have sort of taken it on to figure out what is going on with our dietary data and why are we seeing such weak associations and are they real? And this whole field of measurement error methodology has developed and it's a highly, highly statistical field, and I'm not a statistician, so I will be presenting the epidemiologic view of um, this project and my experience with this methodology, and I would not be standing here if it weren't for two really brilliant statisticians that I work with on this project. So that for um, the introduction. So when we talk about dietary assessment, um, there are actually several reasons why diet, self-reported dietary assessment is relatively error-prone. And this degree of error has to do with the lack of the associations that have oftentimes been seen. So first of all, our memory is not perfect. And the further you are asked to recall into the past, the weaker uh, your, your ability to recollect will be, unless you're particularly gifted, of course. Um, there's a lot of variation in our diet from day to day, so that even if we're asked to recall what we ate this morning or the past 24 hours, um, because our memory is structured th such that we always like to recall what's sort of immediate better than what's further in the past, um, we have a hard time even with short-term dietary assessment instruments. And then very important, there are a lot of psychological factors, and probably the best um, quantified is the social desirability, that may consciously or subconsciously influence us as we report. And particularly with respect to social desirability, it's well known that, um, that there are sort of norms in our society in terms of what we are supposed to eat, all those shoulds you know, that are out there, so that any given person, when they're asked, you know, what about that hamburger last, well, last Monday? You know, it might suddenly shrink from the ginormous one to the smaller one, or you might forget about it, or, or, or. So um, 
it's well known that the stronger one scores on the social desirability, the more likely one is to actually underreport dietary intake. And then another source of um, error comes out of the need to sort of translate the consumption as reported by these instrument, um, instruments into portion sizes, and then those, all of that information links to nutrient databases, and there are errors in those as well. So we have sort of this layering of sources of error. So um, Larry Friedman, who's been working in this field for decades now, really summarized this very nicely in a recent paper. And I, if you're interested in measurement error methodology, this is a wonderfully accessible review paper on the topic. I can highly recommend it. And actually, I used it largely in, to structure my talk, too, because he did such a nice job with that paper. So he concludes that in nutritional epidemiology studies that use self-report instruments, the measured exposure, i.e. the estimated intake, has an error that is often substantial and probably larger than that for most other exposures of common epidemiologic interest. And so compared to, say, even air pollution, uh, other behaviors, nutrition is very hard to um, assess. So the kinds of errors that um, con contribute to this phenomenon are both um, differential measurement error and non-differential measurement error. And the differential error would be um, a situation where the error in the dietary exposure is related to the disease outcome. And this primarily happens in case control studies, um, where case subjects recall their diet in a different way than the control subjects. Um, but this is less likely to occur in a cohort study because of the temporal sequence of events so that uh, people have not gotten ill by the time they're asked about their diet. Usually that happens years or decades before the events occur. But the kind of error that we're um, worried about for the purposes of this uh, lecture is really in the category of non-differential measurement error. And that is error that is not correlated with disease but still um, has a profound impact on the results. And the, the problems that non-differential measurement error um, creates are threefold. So first of all, it creates a bias in the estimated relative risks um, for your exposure outcome association. Secondly, it creates a loss of statistical power to even detect these diet-disease relationships. And then thirdly, in some circumstances, um, Basically, the typical statistical tests that we apply are no longer valid because certain properties of the data are no longer given. And so here's an example of what this kind of um, measurement error or random error could do to you. Um, the, the black line and the black uh, scatter of plots, uh, scatter of little dots would be basically your truth, the true relationship that you're hoping to estimate. So you'd see a nice slope, a ni nice association between whatever the diet is and the health parameter here, something scaled continuously. Um, but what you actually observe in your data is the blue line. And you can see the slope is uh, weaker, and the scatter of these little tr blue triangles now is much wider. So you have sort of illustrated here the impact of one kind of um, measurement error. So how do we quantify measurement error? Um, what we need to do is we have to find a reference um, instrument, something that we consider a truth, sort of in quotes. And then we can use that to calculate the amount of bias. And so in the preceding uh, slide, that would be the change in the slope. And we can calculate a correlation between the actual measure that you're using and the sort of true or reference uh, measure. And so the main instrument that I'll be talking about mostly for the sake of today's talk is um, a food frequency questionnaire. That would be the primary dietary assessment instrument. And the reference instrument would be something that we use to calibrate or validate the main instrument. And it is assumed to have, uh, to provide estimates that are closer to the underlying truth than those of the main instrument. So it's not really a gold standard, but it's kind of an alloyed gold standard, because we really do not have a pure gold standard in this field. So a, a few slides now about the different diet assessment instruments before I get more into the measurement error piece. 
So the food frequency, which we use for a lot of large studies, um, we do that because it's, it's pretty easy to use. It's structured. Um, uh, we ha it's kind of inexpensive in the sense that it can be self-administered. It also captures longer-term intake, which is what we're really interested in usually, the usual intake. Um, it has a finite food list, but our recollection and in answering these questions is oftentimes influenced by what we've eaten very recently. So as we're trying to recall, say, the past year, which is the typical framework for an adult food frequency questionnaire, that may be influenced by you know, whether we're right now at the end of the summer and we remember all the summer foods and fruits, or if we're, say, in January, February, and we really can't remember the peaches, <laughs> but we're really thinking of the kale or whatnot. So, you know, that will influence our report. Um, the FFQ is pretty cognitively challenging because people are asked to recall sort of on average in the past year, which I think is challenging. Um, they're asked to recall how often they eat a certain food and then the kind of portion size that they consume it in. Um, and then there's a certain lack of detail that's inherent in this structured kind of tabular format um, that, that other instruments would get at. A 24-hour recall is what we typically use as a reference instrument, and actually not one 24-hour recall, but multiple, three or more. So the 24-hour recall is a lot less challenging cognitively than an FFQ because you would be asked about what you ate in the last 24 hours. Um, and, and that's usually much easier to recall. Um, there's a lot richer detail because you'll be asked about specific foods. You know, you'll basically give the interviewer a list of, oh, I had breakfast, lunch, a snack, dinner, and then they'll step you through each one of those meals and then ask for forgotten foods, etc. So you get at a level of detail that's much richer because um, they will actually ask you for, say, the kind of cereal you had the brand, not just it was a cereal. Um, but it's quite expensive to collect this, these kinds of data um, until recently, because now there's an online version of this which has really reduced the cost. Um, but it is also only a short-term instrument. It recalls the past day. You need multiple of these to get at anything close to usual intake. And it is quite time-consuming, especially if you eat a lot of foods. And then there are like really good standards, but they're unfortunately only available for a very limited number of um, nutrients. And these are the recovery biomarkers. So these are specific biologic products that are directly related to dietary intake. Um, they're not subject to a lot of error. And good examples of these are doubly labeled water for energy intake and urinary nitrogen for protein intake. But um, there, there are continuously efforts to um, develop other recovery biomarkers, but they're not very far along, sadly. Okay, so before we get into the details, I want to introduce two statistics that we're going to need, um, the correlation and the attenuation factor. So the correlation um, that we talk about in this field of measurement error methodology is the row that you see up there which is the correlation between self-report and truth, sort of in quotes. It measures the strength of a linear relationship. The values are between minus 1 and 1, inclusive of those. And the closer to 0 this correlation, the lower the linear dependence, sort of like your traditional Pearson's correlation coefficient, same uh, interpretation. Um, more fancy statistics, though. <laughs> The attenuation factor, the lambda, is the degree to which a regression coefficient is biased towards the null. So this lambda coefficient has uh, values between 0 and 1. And so the closer the value is to 0, the more attenuation, i.e., the more bias. So the larger the attenuation factors, the better, actually, the less measurement error. OK, so I want to show you briefly um, how bad measurement error can be before we step into um, the examples that I worked on. So the National Cancer Institute several years ago do, um, had a study that was called the Open Validation Study, and this is really a seminal study in the field of measurement error methodology. And they had a sample of, um, I think, women and men, but I only have the data for women here, um, where they 
oops, this is not supposed to happen, um, where they, from which they had doubly labeled water measures, urinary nitrogen, and um, they then had the self-reported intake from food frequency questionnaires and calculated from that total energy intake, total protein intake, and then protein density. And so the first thing that you want to see here is um, the magnitude of these correlation coefficients. So for, for energy intake, total calories, the correlation between self-report and doubly labeled water was only 0.1. Gulp. <laughs> And the attenuation factor was 0.04, which is tiny, which means the bias is huge. Okay. So for protein, it looked a little bit better. Correlation 0.3. Attenuation factor still very small, 0.14, i.e., huge bias. But for protein density, um, the correlation was 0.35, the attenuation factor 0.32. So this was actually starting to look reasonable. And so on the next slide, what I'll show you is the size of relative risk estimates when these attenuation factors have been applied. And the standard is, the assumption was, let's say there's an exposure-outcome relationship of a magnitude of a relative risk of 2. So what would happen to that 2 if we applied to that, those um, attenuation factors? So the two is in the green bar on the left. So if you studied under these conditions the association between protein intake and cancer, the actual observed uh, relative risk would be 1.1. And if you studied the relationship with energy, the observed relative risk would be 1.03. If you looked at protein density, you would see a 1.25 versus the two, which would be the truth. So this is just a little illustration of how bad measurement error can be. So lest you all run out and study something else, we have a few solutions. So how best to deal with measurement error? Um, first of all, we typically do report the conventional relative risk estimates, even if they're biased, as a starting point. Secondly, what we've learned from the open data is that, especially if we have food frequency data, and we're focusing either on food groups or nutrients, um, we should include energy adjustment in the model always. Because there's something about adjusting for energy that actually, across the board, attenuates the measurement error problem. And there's some statistics behind that, why we think that's the case. But it's a, it's a good sort of take-home message. And then, um, for those who are quite quantitatively inclined, you can try some measurement error <laughs> modeling. Um, and I'll show you what happens then in a moment. So the process that we used, and there are a couple alternate techniques, but this is the most common approach to address measurement error, is called regression calibration. So in a nutshell, this is a very simplified description of what it does, is it's a three-step process. And for you to actually do regression calibration, you need two things. You need your main data set on you know, a lot of people where you've assessed diet and you've assessed your outcomes. And the second thing you need is you need a little um, calibration subsample, preferably collected at the same time as your, as your main study. And in that subsample, you want to re-administer the main dietary assessment instrument that you use. So here, for my purposes, it will be a food frequency. And you want to administer that reference instrument that you've selected, maybe the 324 recalls. And then when you have all of these data, so note the calibration sample is a subset of the larger sample, okay? When you have all of these data, it will allow you to do this. So the first thing that happens statistically is um, the calibration sample is used to estimate basically the relationship between the FFQ diet measure and the covariates, and the so-called true um, intake. So the first step really creates a model, a statistical model of the relationship of these two things. And from that come a set of statistics that you've already seen, the correlation coefficients and the attenuation factors. So that's the first step. Then you move on to the second sample, your large data set. And what you do here is you use the FFQ data on your large sample, 
and predict basically the conditional mean dietary intake using the model that you developed in the first step. So the raw FFQ data are used on the entire sample, but they're used in a way to create an, a predicted dietary intake, and that is this regression calibration step where the real observed data are sort of, um, they're ground through the mill, <laughs> and they're changed to become something that's estimated or predicted. And then that information is used in the third step where you're now focusing on the relationship between the predicted dietary intake and the disease outcome. So this is this three-step model. The first step happens on the calibration sample. The second step happens on the full sample but uses the information slash the statistical model gained from the first step. And the third step happens again on the full sample, now uses the dietary information that's predicted plus the disease outcome. We refer to this as the disease model. Was there a question? For the second one, yeah. how do you apply what you get from the first step into the second step? I'd be happy to connect you to my statistician. You get the two factors there and then how you apply it. It's very, very complicated. It's a very complicated statistical procedure that actually does this. It does it sequentially, but also concurrently. I mean, it actually uses these two data sets concurrently in the process, but analytically, this is how it's broken down. Yes? There's never enough. <laughs> um, I think the lowest number you can get away with is about 200, or you know, a little less than that, maybe 150 or so, after missing exclusions and such. But um, you do need more than 100, because um, this relationship between the FFQ, the real FFQ data, and this, S this um, truth, so to speak, has to be esti estimated in a way that's kind of robust. And the smaller the sample size, the wackier the estimates. Do, do you guys do anything in looking at different sample sizes with No. Interesting. So is there any model developed with the second step? Is what developed? You know, just kind of standard approach line. You run that one, and you know what you're doing. Yes and no. I will show you on the last slide a website. The National Cancer Institute has actually developed a whole webinar on measurement error adjustment. Um, they have the macros out there for most of what one can do nowadays, but it is not for the faint of heart. And you absolutely need to work with a biostatistician because there are so many model assumptions, so many very, very difficult programming pieces built into that, that if you don't really understand the theory, you can apply this and not know what you're doing wrong all day long. It's really quite challenging. Okay, so I'll turn now to the first example, which is sort of the, a classical example, but not, um, not in a, applied in a longitudinal way, a cross-sectional evaluation of the relationship between sugar-sweetened beverage intake and lipid levels. And um, we picked this topic for two reasons. First of all, there's sort of interest in sugar-sweetened beverages generally as a potential determinant of the obesity epidemic. But specifically in our, um, in our population of youth with diabetes, we're interested in sugar-sweetened beverage consumption for two reasons. A, they shouldn't be drinking any because they're just raw carbs and not good for people with diabetes but B, they may be using them to actually manage their blood sugar lows, in which case they're interesting again. So it's, it's a topic that's of interest to diabetes epidemiologists. And then secondly, we've previously shown, um, without any measurement error adjustment, that we have an association in our data between sugar-sweetened beverage intake and lipid levels. And that would be the place to start if you're interested in exploring measurement error methodology, because the reality is, this, um, this method um, will very rarely only get you from a null association to a small association. <laughs> You'd hope, but it won't, it won't find things that aren't there. So you basically have to already see associations if you think of the associations as manifest in your beta estimate or point estimate. 
and then what the measurement error modeling can do is sort of enhance those. Okay, and so in search, we actually had a, a small sub-study, um, and let me just talk about search for a minute. So this is a multi-center study, six sites in the United States. We're here, over here. We have three centers in South Carolina. And um, all of these centers recruit kids with um, type 1 and type 2 diabetes uh, under the age of 20 years. And this has been going on since um, 2000. The first cohort was enrolled in 2001. And we have follow-up th of these kids, but that's kind of irrelevant to the purpose of today's talk. But um, what we have on anyone older than 10 is a food frequency questionnaire that's actually a modified version of the Blocks Kids questionnaire. Um, our version has 84 um, items on it. And um, then in uh, the recent past, the Search Nutrition Ancillary Study was funded. And it allowed um, actual additional data collection on, on the search cases with type 1. The reviewers actually took, told us to take out the type 2 from the grant, so now we have these data only on type 1 diabetes. Um, and all of the SNAS, awful acronym, uh, SNAS data collection was integrated with search, and it had a sub-study the diet assessment sub-study in 198 cases in which we applied uh, multiple diet assessment instruments, and I'll show you that in a minute. Um, I'll point out one thing that's really unfortunate about this study is it's the temporal disconnect between the search study going into the field in 2000 and all of the diet being assessed at each baseline visit for these cohorts as they became ineligible, and then SNAS wasn't funded until much later. And so our validation study is actually not situated temporally linked to the baseline data, which is unfortunate but can't be helped. So, um, And this is the design of the diet assessment sub-study. Um, there were two additional food frequencies administered um, spaced a month apart, and there were three 24-hour recalls uh, conducted in between. And the recruitment in DAS was actually uh, relative to the numbers of kids recruited at the other sites. So it's sort of a small proportional representation thought to be of the overarching um, study. And again, DAS was also only conducted in kids age 10 through 20. So here's a quick look at what our um, food frequency um, questionnaire looks like. This is again for kids 10 and older. You see there are these lists of foods on the left. The kid checks whether they consumed it, yes or no, how many days last week, the usual amount eating, eaten on any one day. So we have the frequency and the portion size in a simplified version. And very important, because these are kids as young as 10, the framework was one week, not the typical year that we do with adults. And in terms of the portion sizes, here's the visual. It's sort of a generic visual we created for a very small, small, medium, or large portion size. Or if things are estimated in bowls, you know, the lower figure would be used. And then we have these three 24-hour recalls. Um, they were done on two weekdays and one weekend day. Um, all of this was done using the NDSR software and the interviewers were up at UNC and used this multi-pass interviewing approach. And this is a quick, quick overview of what that looks like. Um, so this is just a schematic of how 24 recalls are administered. The respondent is asked for sort of a quick list of the foods, then asked about forgotten foods, and then you go back through a cycle of detail with time and occasion, detail cycle, and then sort of a final probe, and then you have these Long, long and gory lists of what somebody ate in the past day. Okay, so we use these data in the regression calibration, and um, so this slide is pretty much exactly what you've seen before, except now it's specific to the relationship between sugar-sweetened beverages and um, uh, lipid levels. So again, the calibration sample is used to estimate this relationship between the sugar-sweetened beverage um, intake and the covariates from the, uh, from the FFQ. And the true intake, which is, which is basically estimated from the 24-hour recalls, 
and from there we get the correlation coefficients and the attenuation factors. And then we use the whole sample, all of the search baseline dietary intake data, to predict this conditional mean sugar-sweetened beverage intake, and then ultimately look at the relationship between sugar-sweetened beverage intake and lipids, but now controlling for measurement error. And the one thing for those of you who are interested in the, in the detailed um, statistical methodology that's noteworthy here is sugar-sweetened beverage intake is, a, is considered an episodically consumed food. It's not eaten every day or, you know, hopefully not. Um, and, but that wreaks havoc with a lot of statistical assumptions. Um, for most of these regression methods, we assume normality, et cetera, et cetera. And so in order to circumvent or navigate these statistical problems, the National Cancer Institute developed a method that they simply call the NCI method, which is not very helpful. And it's, it's a two-part model in which, which um, estimates separately the probability of consumption from the amount of consumption. And um, plowed into that is also an energy adjustment. And there's a paper by Doug Methuen that lays this out very nicely. So here are just some quick demographic characteristics on our sample for search. We actually had more than 2,000 youth. That's the big sample that we can work with. The dietary assessment study has, um, you know, with final data on all, complete for all variables that we needed, only 167. And you can see some differences between these samples, which relate to this uh, unfortunate uh, non-linkage in time. So the duration of diabetes is about 54 months in search, but in the diet assessment substudy, these kids have actually had diabetes for more than 70 months. Um, they're consequently also older. Um, the distribution on the other attributes is pretty similar, but that is simply a limitation of our data. Here are the lipid levels for triglycerides, just so you have a sense. So the, the median triglycerides are actually pretty good for these kids, 67, total cholesterol, 165. Is, is pretty good. LDL is, is a little bit on the, I mean, it's, it's normal with 95, but it's, well, it doesn't have much for, further to go before it becomes abnormal. <laughs> and um, here's the, here are the data on the, the sugar-sweetened beverage intake, um, both for the search sample and the diet assessment study sample. And again, this is unfortunately simply a limitation of our data because of some inherent differences in these samples, these averages are not as similar as we would like them to be. Ideally, you'd like them to be like spot on. So the sugar-sweetened beverage intake in the large sample is actually lower than in our calibration sample. Um, and conversely, the energy intake is higher in our main sample than our, in our calibration sample. And we really don't know why that is, other than these people have been ex have experienced a lot more diet assessment in the course of their life because they've been they've been to search, they've come to the calibration visit, had you know the food frequency there, three 24-hour recalls plus another food frequency. So they may simply be tired of answering our questions and starting to skip over foods. Uh, so we and they're older, which means the whole social desirability starts to kick in. So they're likely to be under-reporting more. Okay, so these are the results for this first question of how much um, impact does actually this adjustment for measurement error have um, if I'm looking at the relationship between sugar-sweetened uh, beverages and lipids. So you see the three lipid parameters um, in the rows. And the first set of columns shows you the associations without any measurement error adjustment. Um, and the second column set shows you the results with measurement error adjustment. And so if we just focus, say, on triglycerides for a moment, you can see that even though these betas are small, I mean, these are log sugar-sweetened beverage, log triglycerides. Everything is log because the distributions are so awful. Um, the beta coefficients actually increase as we go from the unadjusted model to the adjusted model. So for triglyceride, the beta goes from a 0.008 up to a 0.02. So that's a marked increase in the strength of the association. It's still tiny, but an increase. Um, for total cholesterol, we see another nice little increase there from 0.003 to 0.01. 
and we're and then for LDL we see another such increase and actually for LDL the association um, the so association is significant both with and without the measurement error adjustment. So this is the kind of thing you would hope to achieve if you adjust for measurement error, that your, your beta coefficients, your, the strength of your association or your relative risks actually start increasing a little bit. And this is run, these are the results after the calibration, so this is run on the full? Yes, yes. Both are run on the full sample. The left set of columns is without measurement error adjustment, the right-hand set with uh, measurement error adjustment, i.e. de-attenuated. So I've already talked about uh, some of these limitations. Um, and so sort of in conclusion from this first little example, we feel that you know, it sort of underscores, it's a nice teaching example of the importance of adjusting for measurement error um, in nutritional epidemiology. And, and we found this, this method to be useful but difficult. So um, I don't think um, without, a, well, I, as I said before, I, I think you absolutely need to do this in consultation with a biostatistician because especially if you think of all the transformations that we did of the data, exclusions of um, outliers, et cetera, et cetera, this was a long and gory process. I think we must have run probably 12 different iterations of these analyses until we got to the point where we said, we've taken care of all of the assumptions, we know the assumptions are met, um, and we can sort of trust our results. Okay. The second example that I want to share with you looks at the validity of a fruit frequency. And um, just by, by way of background, um, there actually, there are a number of dietary assessment instruments that have been specifically developed for youth. Um, and this Block Kids uh, questionnaire is one of them. There are a few others. Not very many of them have been validated. And um, the block questionnaire was validated initially. There was at least an abstract published, but they never published the full paper, and I don't know why not. This is now easily 10 years ago. Um, in the meantime, another group has validated that instrument, and its paper is published by um, Cullen Weber. Um, and um, then our paper will, will come out with our results as well. And then there are a few other validated instruments, but very few of these publications have actually utilized the measurement error piece in the validation. And that's important because, in essence, in the olden days, what you did is you just tried to validate your FFQ against, say, the average of three or seven 24-hour recalls. Well, the 24-hour recalls are, um, they're all done on the same person, so there's all this within-person variability that goes into those estimates that really should be taken into account. And with the measurement error modeling, you can actually do that. So um, we uh, attempted here to evaluate the relative validity of this particular food frequency questionnaire and adjust for the within-person variability in the intakes. And we also wanted to do it in a way that was actually appropriate to the episodic nature of the foods that we're interested in. Because a lot of the work we do nowadays is food group oriented and no longer nutrient oriented, and that has different statistical implication, implications. So you've seen this probably one time too many by now. Um, and in terms of the process, again, this, the process starts the same way. This analysis is now purely done in this calibration subsample, and we're going to get from it these correlation coefficients and the attenuation factors. And then we're going to not do any of this stuff in between because we're not interested in the relationship between any of the diet and any outcomes. We're just interested in the validity of the food group reports um, in this instrument. And again, we're using this NCI method and this two-part model for the episodically consumed foods. And then there are simpler models that are used if you're interested in nutrients, which are not episodical in their nature. I mean, you always consume a little of virtually all nutrients. So this whole episodic nature really only, um, and the statistical issues behind that, only apply to food groups and only some of those. So um, just to show you a little bit of descriptive data, um, we have here the reported frequency of consumption and um, from the, on food groups in servings per day in the left-hand column from the food frequency questionnaire and in the right-hand column from the 24-hour recalls. And I'm showing you only some really, really large food groups that correspond to sort of 
big picture dietary recommendations. And you can see easily that with the food frequency, virtually all kids reported some amount of consumption of breads, fruits and vegetables, um, fruit, dairy, oh, uh, sorry, I repeated that, meat, fish, poultry, we created this sort of aggregate protein foods category, fats, oils, and sweet, and then the sugar-sweetened beverages I've put in the last row sort of for comparison and linkage to the previous part of the example. And then on the 24-hour recall side, these are now the consumption frequencies across all three uh, recalls. So if, if on any occasion they reported any bread, say, they would be right there in the 98%. And you can see that there are actually a couple of food groups where, um, where you would start saying these are episodically consumed foods. So for instance, even the vegetables with the 88%, we, we use 10% as a threshold. Um, at, so 12% of the kids didn't report any vegetable consumption on any of the three days, <laughs> sadly. Um, and half of the kids did not report any fruit intake on any of the three days, very episodic. And then sugar-sweetened beverage, this is a little better, actually. I'm kind of happy that they didn't eat, drink a lot of uh, soda, but 23% uh, reported consuming any soda the last three days, or sugar-sweetened uh, water or um, tea or the likes. Now, if you compare the two columns of means, you see um, that there are clearly differences in the mean estimates between these two assessment instruments. And for the first food groups, um, bread, we have higher reports on the 24-hour recall. Um, but for instance, down here, fats, oils, and sweets, the uh, mean in the FFQ is much higher than the 24-hour recall. So we see some inconsistencies. In general, we would have expected that the intakes are a little bit higher on the 24-hour recalls than on the FFQ, but um, that didn't always happen in our data. But what I want to point out to you are the food groups where we did see really large discrepancies, so the fats and oils, and then up there, the bread, uh, rice, pasta. Um, those are the two really unfortunate ones. Okay, and now we're looking at these, the results of the regression calibration model. Um, again, we see the rows, the correlation coefficients, and the attenuation factors. And you can see quite easily that the correlations are quite low for the first food group. Again, the bread, rice, pasta, cereal, um, correlation of 0.26, attenuation factor of 0.11. And likewise, a really poor correlation for the fats, oils, and sweets food group, 0.11 for a correlation, 0.05 for an attenuation factor. So if we thought of publishing anything specific to this food group in relationship to some biomarker or risk factor or disease outcome, we would probably not see any association. Very likely for that one as well, unfortunately. For sugar-sweetened beverages, um, fortunately, the, the rows were um, decent, 0.5 for a correlation and 0.48 for an attenuation factor. So this would suggest that this is a factor of two, you know, if everything had lined up properly. And you have a question? Uh, what do you think would be the reason for such different selection of errors between food groups? Yeah. Um, so I think there are there are a couple of things going on, and they're actually specific to the food groups. So for the bread, uh, cereal, rice, and pasta group, we actually think the, the culprit is the bread, that there's something in the, um, let me just flip back briefly. There's something in the, in the, how the FFQ queries foods that have bread associated with it that systematically undercaptures under what's really being consumed. Because you see a much higher intake in the 24-hour recalls for that food group. And we think it's actually the bread. I mean, we've, I have these data for the paper. It'll be at this level and then broken down. And um, for instance, whole grain breads are just not reported on the FFQ. And we know kids are eating something that looks like whole grain. I mean, not like whole grain in Germany, but <laughs> the American version of whole grain. Um, but there's also something about the FFQ structure where we think 
there were not enough items or it isn't parsed out well enough to capture as much of the bread that's actually being eaten. So that's specific to that food group. Here, um, it's, it's the opposite. And here, maybe what's happening, though I'm less certain about it because I have less insight into it, is that the NDSR system has very specific rules about how it, how it breaks up um, composite foods, mixed dishes, and add condiments and all of these things that go into the oils and fats piece. And that that assignment may actually be systematically putting that, those foods in places where the FFQ doesn't. So we've actually, we've spent months on trying to get our FFQ programming to align as much as possible with the philosophy behind the 24-hour the recall diet programming. But it's quite possible that there are still assignments that we simply can't make based on the FFQ data that are happening in NDSR so that fewer um, fats and oils actually end up here than the FFQ would assign them. So it's unfortunately very food group specific in terms of what the reasons may be. Okay. And then I, just for the sake of co comparison, I'm showing you this table, which is now uh, focused on just a select set of nutrients, just for the sake of magnitude. You see here all the correlation coefficients are 0.4 and above. And before, we had a, a large variety in the magnitude of the correlations. And the best one was actually, I think, 0.48 or 5 before. So it looks like this particular instrument is a lot better if we're focusing at nutri on nutrients than, at least it's more consistent uh, when we're focusing on nutrients than when we're focusing on food groups, which is very unfortunate because all of my interests are <laughs> at the food group level because they directly linked to behavioral recommendations, but such it is. Okay, so um, just a couple of words on conclusions. I think we've talked about the results uh, inherently, but I just want to come to this last bullet. I think what we've learned from this exercise of trying to validate our FFQ, albeit in a sort of imperfect way, um, is that there is some need for improvement in the instrument itself. If we were to start a new study, I would invest the resources to improve this instrument specifically with respect to the breads, I know, and then a couple of other things where I think we're, we're not getting the whole picture. Having said that, relative to the larger literature on validation of dietary instruments, our instrument is actually quite, quite all right. It's very similar to, it's better than what's been published for most other kid instruments. And it's not as good as some of the high-end um, instruments that are published, um, that have been published on for adults. But it's somewhere intermediate. It's in the same range. So that makes me feel um, pretty good. So um, I wanted to give you this one resource. This is the National Cancer Institute's Measurement Error webs webinar series. Um, if I recall correctly, it's almost like 12 hours worth or, or more of sessions on the internet that you can go through. Um, there are tutorials, there are SAS macros, there is every possible kind of support you can imagine. Um, they actually had it start last fall and cycled through it, and there it was sort of, I don't know if it really was live, but there was actually more support by NCI um, for it than is there is now, but um, these people are very, very interested in getting the word out on this methodology. Um, so we've been very fortunate uh, to be able to work with, say, Victor Kipnis, who's one of the National Cancer Institute biostatisticians who does measurement error modeling for his livelihood. Uh, so when our group, uh, you know, ran into problems, um, we got him on board and got critical feedback from him. And there are, they have a team of easily, I want to say, four statisticians up at NCI and this is all they do. <laughs> so they're a great resource. They're incredibly helpful. They're brilliant people. I can only uh, highly recommend that if you're interested, you um, talk to them. And so I would like to acknowledge um, the funding that we had for this pro project. Beth Mary Davis is the PI. She's up at UNC. 
used to be here. And then uh, the two statisticians that I work with on a weekly basis are Jamie Crandell up at UNC in uh, School of Nursing and Janet Tooze, who's over at Wake Forest University, both biostatisticians um, and both involved in SNAS. And, uh, and that's about the right ratio for this kind of work, <laughs> two biostatisticians to one epidemiologist. I mean, it's really, really high-end stuff. And then I'd like to thank, of course, um, the search families and the SNAS participants for the time they spend on this data collection, and Max, who's kindly helped me with the slides. And I'll take any additional questions you may have. Given that the NCR method differentiates between habitual and episodic intake, is that at the food level, is that at the nutrient level? Because in some ways, the sugar suit beverages, you're always getting nutrients, glucose, fructose. Right. It's done at the food level. The episodically two-part kind of model is only applied to food group level analyses and only if the food group meets that criteria. We use 10%, but I'm sure there's some analyses also what, what cut point you could use. So as far as I know, I've never seen a publication that's applied that to nutrients. You make a really good point. So this is why everything you saw in terms of that reference in instrument and the criteria was sort of under ideal circumstances. We know now that the errors between the errors of that are inherent in FFQs and in 24-hour recalls are actually correlated with each other. So these instruments are not independent. So I think we're kind of stuck right now because we don't really have an alternative. Um, how that impacts the results of regression calibrations, I don't think that that's fully understood. Certainly, I don't know yet. I don't have a feeling that it's like it would overestimate the associations. It, it, I think it would go the other way around, actually. Um, but what it definitely means is that even this kind of um, correction for measurement error is still not optimal. We would need a, a even better reference instrument and one that's completely, one where the errors are completely uncorrelated with the errors in the food frequency. You mentioned that um, your food frequency questionnaire performed better than others. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that's partly because maybe type 1 diabetic children are more in tune with what they're eating because it has such a large health indication? Yeah, I, I think that's a definite possibility. Um, though their, their diet is awful, I mean, they don't meet a single dietary recommendation. It is still quite possible that because they do the carb counting and they have to estimate, you know, how much the carbs they eat before they shoot their insulin, that they inherently have a little bit better sense of what they eat, at least. Yes, I think that's a really good point. But don't you think that the relationship between the measurement error really puts the question your validity study? Because now you're just saying, well, studies, they, it might be valid, but they both are neither one. Well, I wouldn't have put it quite that way. <laughs> I'm just saying, I mean, if that's a known issue with these two instruments, which I know nothing about either well, of them, I but I, I, I'm just saying when you're, I mean, the best validity study would be if the FFQ is valid against, against some other measure, yes. which sounds like yes. the field needs a new measure, um, yes. quite honestly. But, and, well, I don't mean to put you on the spot with that question, but the other point is, I think, the same thing with energy adjustment. Yes. I mean, we, we say you should energy adjust as long as you know you're measuring energy very well. But we know we're not measuring energy very well, and yet we find that energy adjustment actually helps the situation, even though we're not yeah. measuring yeah. it. Yeah. So I'm just saying, it's one of those things, if they both have suffered yes. and they're related, then I'm actually, I would be more surprised if they didn't, you didn't have some level of validity if they have the same, if the measurement errors are related, because that could be, I'm saying that could be driving your validity to some extent. Well, um, Let's put it this way. You could run this whole validation exercise without any adjustment for measurement error. And um, the magnitude of the correlations you would then see is smaller than what you see here.
We have not. And um, in that's a great suggestion and one that I hadn't thought of yet. <laughs> I know we've talked about it offline about another project, but I hadn't thought of it for uh, sort of the larger analyses that we've done in search. I don't think we can do it for our calibration work because our sample would shrink to something too small. <laughs> but for the larger association studies, it would be an <clears throat> an interesting question. We unfortunately don't have a measure of social desirability because otherwise I would, I would use that um, preferably to take out people who are likely under reporters or at least I just adjust for it or something like that, but we don't have that. But that's a great suggestion for our paper actually. Right. I'm not familiar with that one. So. Yes, we shall chat. <coughs> Good. Okay. Yes. How much uh, applicable do you think these approaches about maximum error are to other self-development yeah. such as cystic activity? And those kind of approaches you're facing. I think they're very applicable to physical activity. Um, but you have one advantage. You have objective measures at least from accelerometer. So I know that at the, at the large sort of methods conference, like this year there was the International Diet and Physical Activity Assessment Conference again, it happens every few years. They have a whole day on measurement error and modeling of physical activity. And then there's the same thing going on for nutrition. But what I see, um, what I saw th this, this year and then three years ago happening in physical activity, in the physical activity field, that's really, really interesting is um, there are more and more people that actually use combinations of measures rather than just a single measure. Um, and I think that's very promising in your field. Now, I do think that some thought to measurement error would help because all of those instruments are a little bit flawed as well. Um, but you do have some objective measures that you can plow into the equation, at least for your total, in it, well, I was going to say, but accelerometer is not that good for total energy expenditure either. I mean, it's actually really good for activity. So you have an objective measure for, say, MVPA, and then you can add, layer the self-report onto that, which we, we never have that objective measure, at least not at the moment. Um, but I think that's, it's, there's very parallel work going on also at NCI, and I know at least one, other, one or two other groups in the United States that are working on measurement error models for physical activity. And I think it's been a little bit in the background because <clears throat> objective measures have been available for a while, and so people thought, oh, you know, we're good. <laughs> Maybe a little bit complacent there. Um, but a lot of this, I think, could be used. Having said that, um, how real-world applicable is it? I mean, none of this can happen unless you have that calibration subsample. And so this really means that for any new epidemiologic study, you have to plan and you have to have the resources to do that subsample work. And that's a lot of money that will go towards that small sample. And um, so it's a trade-off. You know, it, it depends. If your study's all around nutrition, then absolutely I think anything that would be funded these days ought to have something like this going on. Do they? No, I'm sure they don't. Yes, they are actually, I don't have them here, but they're actually all published. Yes, the open study has published on those as well. Yeah, um, that will provide more justification. Why later you see the 24 that requires your two reference. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, thank you for that suggestion. Yeah, yeah. but I Good. still didn't get away with the, you know, uh, Susan said this correlation of errors between two. Yeah, SFQ. Yes. So, yeah, so ideally you would want your, your, um, the errors in your main instrument to be completely unrelated to the errors in your um, reference instrument. 
But the open study has shown, and they can do this because they have the doubly labeled water as the standard, so they've actually seen that the, the errors between the two instruments are unfortunately correlated. And that's not what you'd want under ideal circumstances. Yes. 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 Yeah. That's a very good point, and I forgot about that. Yes, absolutely. It goes both ways. Okay. Well, thank you all very much for coming. <laughs>